You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Outcomes from the White House Industry Cybersecurity Summit, the cyber partisans aim at the overthrow of Lukashenko's rule in Minsk, a role for storytelling and security, scams, sports, and streaming, speculation about the shiny hunter's next moves, Verizon's Chris Novak on reducing false positives in threat intelligence, Bensi Benatar from Sepio Systems on the risks of hardware-based attacks, internal abusers, corporate espionage, and Wi-Fi, and cyber criminals like their VPNs, too. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, August 26, 2021. U.S. President Biden met with industry leaders yesterday to formalize some cybersecurity national priorities. Among the measures announced were a cooperative program between industry and the National Institute of Standards and Technology to bolster the security of the technology supply chain and the formal extension of the Industrial Control System's cybersecurity initiative to natural gas pipelines. Participants from industry committed to initiatives ranging from coupling insurance coverage to compliance with certain basic security standards to investment in cyber workforce development to committing resources to cybersecurity technology. The initiatives that stood out involved development of security standards and offering incentives to follow them, training and workforce enhancement programs, and offers of free services. Zero trust, multi-factor authentication, and risk management solutions figure prominently among these last. The industry leaders in attendance specifically committed to these undertakings. Apple will establish a program to push continuous security improvements in the technology supply chain. The company will work with suppliers, more than 9,000 of them in the United States, to, quote, drive the mass adoption of multi-factor authentication, security training, vulnerability remediation, event logging, and incident response, end quote. Google announced an investment of $10 billion over the next five years to expand zero-trust programs, help secure the software supply chain, and enhance open-source security. Mountain View will also assist 100,000 U.S. workers earn industry-recognized digital skills certificates that will qualify them for tech jobs. IBM also announced a training initiative. It intends to train 150,000 people in cybersecurity skills over the next three years. 
It will also partner with historically black colleges and universities to establish cybersecurity leadership centers. Microsoft will invest $20 billion over the next five years for integration of cybersecurity into design and to develop and deliver advanced security solutions. It will also make $150 million in technical services available to government organizations at the federal, state, and local levels. Redmond also plans partnerships with community colleges and not-for-profits to deliver cybersecurity training. Amazon will offer the public at no charge the same security awareness training it offers its employees. All AWS account holders will also receive multi-factor authentication devices. Two cyber insurance providers, Resilience and Coalition, also participated in the meetings. Resilience will require policyholders to meet a minimal threshold of cybersecurity best practices as a condition of their coverage. This follows the historical pattern of the role insurers have played in other sectors. Coalition offer, free to any organization that wants it, the underwriter's cybersecurity risk assessment and continuous monitoring platform. We'll have other coverage of the White House Cybersecurity Summit, including industry reaction, in this afternoon's CyberWire Pro policy briefing. The Belarusian cyberpartisans seem to seriously intend the overthrow of President Lukashenko's government. MIT Technology Review reports signs that the partisans may have help from inside the regime itself, which suggests that should the regime succumb to this and other pressure— and that seems unlikely, at least in the near term, its fall will be at least as much coup d'etat as revolution. There's been much discussion of cyber conflict in all of its forms, from direct action by nation-state intelligence services through political hacktivism to cyber privateering, and much of that discussion has been dominated by analogies that seem to suggest themselves— Cyber Pearl Harbor to take one, or Cyber 9-11 to take another. Some of these analogies can be lazily or inaptly applied. But is it worth thinking about the role of analogy in a closer, more critical way? Earlier this month, author Nick Shevelyov discussed his new book, Cyber War and Peace, Building Digital Trust Today with History as Our Guide, with Synet's Robert Rodriguez. Shevelyov's purpose in writing was to explore the role of storytelling in arriving at an understanding of cyber conflict. That storytelling involves not only historical analogies, but also proverbial narratives from myth and folklore. It is, Shevelyov argues, a superior way of arriving at an appreciation of fundamental cyber principles. Sometimes these stories are philosophical, like lessons the Stoics can teach risk managers. Well, the ancient Stoics uh, had this concept of a premeditation of evils, right? Think through all the things that can go wrong in your life and then start to reduce the probability of those events. It's sort of like when you don't know what you really want. Well, think about all the things you don't want, and then that will help narrow uh, your direction and so I started um, this, this concept uh, and re- templatized it and operationalized it of uh, pre-mortems. As before we set out on a journey, on a project, on a program, what are all the things that can go wrong and how do we avoid those? And what are the things that we didn't want to talk about 
because of incentives and because of a sense of urgency uh, and because of building risk into our very own efforts. You know, risk happens when there's pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. Shevelyov's target audience is first business leaders who wish to come to a better understanding of cybersecurity, and second to security practitioners interested in improving their ability to communicate with the teams and the organizations those teams serve. The book has been available since August 18th. You can listen to the whole interview on Synet's website. Researchers at security firm Zscaler's Threat Labs have released a report on scams and adware campaigns that accompanied the recent Tokyo Olympics. The conclusions are instructive because they illustrate the way in which high-profile events in sport and other cultural domains draw the attention of cyber criminals. One of the more common fraudulent approaches Zscaler observed involved streaming services, suspicious streaming services, Threat Labs calls them, quote, These streaming websites are not associated with legitimate Olympic streaming providers. Instead, the websites claim to provide free access and then request payment credentials from customers. The sites often reuse a template that we've seen for many current events, including NBA, Olympic, and football events. Registering with the dodgy sites require you to enter personal information, including pay card data, and the consequences of filling in the scammer's forms can be easily imagined. There's also a lot of adware, and here too the bait is usually a free or discount streaming service. Zscaler finds that many of these come-ons redirect to ads for sites devoted to betting, auto-trading, and the like. They've also seen some direct social engineering intended to get users to install adware. Quote, We've seen cases where users are redirected to install adware in the form of browser extensions and fake software updaters. In the case below, we can see olympicstreams.me directing users to install the Your Stream Search browser extension. Your Stream Search is a known browser hijacker that recommends ads based on search history. End quote. So, sports fans, stream from legitimate sites only. Digital Shadows looks at the Shiny Hunters, the criminal group that claimed to have compromised data held by AT&T, claims AT&T denies, and notes their shift toward extortion and their here-today-gone-tomorrow mode of operation. Whatever turns out to be the case with the claimed AT&T attack, the Shiny Hunters will probably recede temporarily, then reappear with refined technique. Application security platform vendor Sequence finds that bot operators, like legitimate users, are finding virtual private networks useful in obscuring their origin and infrastructure. VPN services that don't limit the number of connections are proving valuable in mounting high-volume attacks. So, some of the high-volume attacks benefit from the cloak a VPN can throw over other online activity. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance, 
for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. There are likely a handful of electronic devices in your office that, as far as security is concerned, you tend not to give much thought to. Or if you do, you're confident that when they were installed and set up, the proper settings were put in place to isolate them from sensitive information. Vensi Benatar is co-founder of cloud services provider Sepio Systems, and he and his colleagues have published a series of YouTube videos demonstrating common hardware vulnerabilities that could fly under the radar. Obviously, in the boardroom and meeting rooms, there's obviously a lot of sensitive information that is being presented there. So how difficult would it be to capture that data and exfiltrate it to, uh, to an interested audience, so to speak? So the attacker wanted to get all the information that is being presented, all the video that was being presented, on a certain smart TV set that was located in a meeting room. In order to do that, uh, he used an internal abuser, in this case uh, played by an evil maid, who was paid off to do a very simple task. While she's cleaning the room, plugging a rubber ducky, which is a device that emulates a keyboard functionality, injects a certain payload, then she disconnects the payload, the the attack itself is very persistent. And then everything that is being displayed on that TV set is actually being recorded locally. And then the attacker, using a preset uh, access point where the TV connects to, can actually get all the files that were captured and stored locally without setting foot in the, in the victim's office. 
Now, the cool thing about this attack is that we didn't need to manipulate anything on the TV. So it is actually an out-of-the-box TV where we use a very simple method where you actually can control everything on the TV uh, by using the remote control. And every smart TV and TV in general that has a remote control has also a USB input that allows it to connect an external keyboard. So, uh, you know, romantic as I would like it to, to appear or as professional as I would like it to appear, no reverse engineering, no malware, you know, flashy malware, just a basic built-in functionality that is being uh, used by the attacker due to the fact that he decided to use the hardware aspect as his attack vehicle instead of trying to force his way in through uh, network uh, interfaces or, or things like that. I'll tell you another uh, nice story about that. One of the pushbacks that we get is from uh, the data centers guy. They would say, argue, um, you know, to some level of uh, what they believe to be true, is that no one can go in and out a, of a data center with anything. And then I, I, I told him, you know, there's, there's one thing that can go in and out uh, without any examination whatsoever. He can visit the facility on a, on a periodic basis, which is an important thing when you're an attacker. And uh, you never check what he brings in. And the guy is the guy that brings the fire extinguishers. And, you know, next to every rack in a data center, there's an automatic fire extinguishing system. So the demo that we did there was uh, actually implant the, the base plate of a fire extinguisher with the implant using a, a, a low-range uh, exfiltration radio so that it won't be picked up by any uh, flashy uh, RF sensors or, or like RF geolocation emitters or things like that. And obviously, no one checks it. No one scans the fire extinguishers. And, you know, if you're a subcontractor, then you need to go on a periodic basis and you can, uh, you know, change your uh, storage devices. You can modify where you're uh, connecting your devices. So it's a very easy, uh, very easy setup. And, uh, and this is the, this is exactly uh, the, what we're trying to generate awareness uh, about. The understanding that these devices do not require special capabilities and that the the attack tools are readily available, whether through uh, Hack5 shops or, or through a AliExpress uh, a online stores. The technology is very much available. You don't need to be the brightest engineers in, in, in order to master them. And attackers understand the the progress and the and the landscape of of the cybersecurity measures that are being uh, put in place in order to block them. That's Bensi Ben Atar from Sepio Systems. I'm pleased to be joined once again by Chris Novak. He is the Global Director of Verizon's Threat Research Advisory Center. Uh, Chris, it is always great to have you back. Um, You know, one of the things that people deal with when they are ingesting uh, threat intelligence is trying to deal with that, what I've heard described as that fire hose of information, you know. And and in, in that, you can get a lot of false positives. I know that's something you and your team have been focused on here. What can you share with us? 
Yeah, great to great to be on the show again, Dave. Thanks. You're absolutely right. That's probably the number one complaint. It's, there's almost that groan in the room the moment you say, "Hey, how about threat intelligence?" And you kind of hear everyone go, Ugh. "That's." <laughs> it's like the old days of IDS. You know, everyone's like, "Oh, wow, this thing is great. It's got all these blinking lights. I get you know a million alerts a day." And you're like, "But, but then you have a million alerts you need to dispatch and figure out, right?" Right. <laughs> and so we said, "Look, there's right. you know the, the famous. There's got to be a better way." You know, so we worked with our team on this and we said, you know, it was actually kind of interesting from a threat intelligence perspective, us bringing something to the market. I'd I'd say we were actually pretty late to the game, but that was, I would say, maybe almost intentional. You know, part of it was regulatory for years we were not able to share because we were a telco and there were various, you know, FCC regulations on what we could and couldn't share. And then, you know, in the the mid, uh, I'd say 2015, 2016 timeframe, there were some changes in the laws that allowed us to share you know, essentially anonymized, aggregated, uh, essentially cyber defense kind of data. And so that really kind of took our handcuffs off and said, okay, now we can actually get into this space and share what it is we've always seen. Because it was kind of, you know, the way I would describe it to people, it was like we were kind of sitting back, kind of looking at the internet like uh, like you'd see the movie The Matrix. And we could see everything right. going on. We just couldn't talk about it. So that kind of unleashed our ability to talk about it. And what, we've, what we actually found was a, a lot of times when we look at these incidents, we find that they are you know, rarely in isolation. About 80 plus percent of all the breaches we investigate are connected to other breach events. But a lot of times it's that connective tissue that, that you don't necessarily always have the luxury of seeing unless, unless you're an ISP. We've done a lot there to reduce the false positives to say, look, as we collect more data, you inherently have the potential for there to be more false positives. How do you reduce that kind of fire hose, as you mentioned? And so one of the things that we did was Verizon is a massive managed security services company. People may not necessarily know, but there are millions of devices around the world that we manage for customers, as well as millions of devices within Verizon that obviously our our corporate security team manages. And so what we put together was this concept of active false positive reduction, where we said, when our investigative team goes out and finds something, let's take that data that we would normally ingest into our feed, curate and send out to customers of our, our intelligence feed. And let's bounce it against our MSS and our internal systems and see whether or not we get anything that lights up somewhere. And what can we learn from it? Because one of the challenges we found a lot of customers had with threat intelligence is there's not a feedback loop. I mean, you think about it. If you subscribe to a news feed, you know, like a threat intelligence feed, you get data, but you rarely give data back to say, hey, this was a false positive or this triggered three times or a hundred times. In many cases, the threat intelligence feed provider has no knowledge of what you do with it after they've kind of flung the data over the fence to you. And that was another one of those, there's got to be a better way kind of thoughts. And we said, all right, well, if we take that data and bounce it against all these millions of devices that we manage that are across, you know, essentially span the globe. So they've got a geographic footprint, span all industries. So we've got, you know, really little to no bias in the data. Let's see what lights up. And if we see that there are false positives that are our managed security services or internal corporate security teams flag, we can essentially tamp that down or remove that data altogether from the feed without a customer even having to be bothered by it. Go one step further. If you have the ability to actually see demographics. So, so think about it, Dave, if you could see that an indicator of compromise goes off predominantly in Japan, and that's the only place you see it, you might start saying, well, hey, 
maybe let me see if I can enrich this intelligence a little bit further and find out, you know, why when I push this intelligence out to my globally diverse set of endpoints, do I only ever see it light up in Japan? Maybe that tells me something about who the threat actor is. Maybe it tells me something about their motives. It may not come right out and spell it out for me, but it gives me a thread that I can pull at to say, let's enrich this a little further. Let's let's answer the question of why. Is there a danger that, um, you know, something that is a, a false positive to me may be a very interesting bit of information for you? Ah, excellent point. So there, there's always a chance of that. But one of the things that we look at there is typically a false positive is not going to be removed or indicated as a, quote, false positive just based on any one flag. So if one entity says, Mm. hey, this is a false positive or one endpoint we manage, it kind of looks like a false positive. What we're looking at is data on an aggregated level. So we have millions of endpoints in which we're collecting data on. If one or two flag it as a false positive, but hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands say this is actually good, it may actually be whoever it is that flagged it as a false positive is wrong or doesn't have as big of a picture view as maybe some of those other endpoints do. And so that's where that kind of, um, there's a machine learning element to the back end to kind of collect and aggregate the feedback that we get and essentially score it. So if we say, hey, this response is typically always very well received and this response is often wrong, we can actually take that into the bigger picture view as we determine whether or not do we mark it as a false positive or not, or do we just reduce the confidence in it as opposed to flat out marking it as a false positive. All right. Well, fascinating stuff for sure. Chris Novak, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. That's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Fittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.